Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, in general, I don't consider myself to be a very violent person. I mean, yeah, everybody has little flashes of temper every once in a while, but I think most of us manage to keep it under control. That's getting suspended here. The only reason that I haven't tracked Stampy Longnose down and curb smash that annoying son of a bitch is because I refuse, I patently fucking refuse to fly all the way to London just to beat somebody's ass. I'm not going to do it. All right? So instead, what I'm going to do is use my podcast as a forum to tell everybody what an annoying son of a bitch that guy is and how I hope he fucks off and dies in a fire. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. No! Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own anger. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and you'd think all I care about is comics, movies, and TV shows, because those are all I ever seem to talk about. And this week's not going to be much different. Yep, more comics this time out. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about Batman. Now... Lately, I'll be the first to admit that I've had a difficult time with Batman, and a great big part of that is his goddamn fans, with their little fucking internet memes about how cool Batman is, how lame Superman is by comparison, and basically doing everything but sticking their tongues up Batman's asshole. Honestly, the the circle jerk that is Batman's fandom these days is pretty fucking irritating, but... Then I remember that there was a time when I loved Batman, and that was before any of this aggravating bullshit ever happened, and that's what I try to focus on. And remember, every time I read Batman comics these days, you know? Those happier times when you could read Batman stories and you didn't have to acknowledge, even if it was just only to yourself... Acknowledge the fact that some assholes out there consider this to be less of a comic book and more of a revealed religious fucking text or something. But anyway. But that was never going to be too big of a challenge this time out, because this time out I'm going to talk about the storyline Going Sane from Legends of the Dark Knight number 65, 66, 67, and 68. The concept of going sane as a story is actually pretty simple. What if the Joker wins? Going Sane was written by J.M. DeMatteis, penciled by Joe Staten, inked by Steve Mitchell, lettered by Willie Schubert, colored by Digital Chameleon, with Jim Spivey as the associate editor, 
and Archie Goodwin as the editor. Part one opens with Park Ridge, the safest community in all of Gotham City, covered in snow. Park Ridge is a place of real community, where neighbors say hello to one another, doors are left unlocked, and children play in the snow. Suddenly, an impromptu parade led by the Joker and a crew of circus performers comes down the street. The crowd watches in fascination and joy while the Joker goes through his clown routine, inspired by his heroes like Lou Costello, Harry Langdon, and Dennis Day. Then the Joker sets off a bomb and kills everybody, citizen and performer alike. Later, a group of kids converge on an electronics store that was near the epicenter of the blast, intending to loot the place. Most of them think that nobody will even notice the difference, but Batman intervenes and says, He'll know the difference, and so will the kids. Batman tries to talk the kids out of looting the store. That's all two of the kids need to hear, so they run off, but their leader decides to take Batman on, so Batman slaps him around a little bit and warns him to never try anything this stupid ever again, and then sends him on his way. Later, Batman's brooding in the Batcave about all the chaos and mayhem the Joker causes everywhere he goes. Batman long ago decided that there are lines that nobody should cross. And Batman long ago appointed himself to be the guardian of the safe places in Gotham City. He then loses his shit over the simple fact of the Joker's existence and smashes the Batcomputer to pieces. Later, the Joker kidnaps Gotham City Councilwoman Elizabeth Kenner and takes her back to his hideout, the Comedia th Movie Theater. There he screens old films from Charlie Chaplin, Harold Lloyd, and Laurel and Hardy. Then he gets pissed off when he notices Councilwoman Kenner hasn't so much as cracked a smile. So the Joker beats her to a pulp with his bare hands. Meanwhile, Batman cruises the, the streets of Gotham City searching for Councilwoman Kenner and getting nowhere. He's chased dozens of false leads and found nothing but useless dead ends. Batman's starting to get seriously pissed off, but he reminds himself to keep it all under control. The minute he loses control over himself, the Joker wins. He's got to stay calm and keep his emotions in check. Before too long, the Joker lures Batman to the roof of police headquarters. There, Batman loses control again. While dodging bullets, Batman talks about how Councilwoman Kenner has honor, principles, and compassion. Batman gets steadily angrier and angrier and beats the shit out of his attacker. And it's only then that he notices that it's not even the Joker that's on the rooftop with him. It's one of his minions come to deliver a message. The thug tells Batman where to find the Joker while Batman realizes he's losing control. The massacre in Park Ridge and the kidnapping of Councilwoman Kenner are pushing him over the edge, and he can't afford that if he's going up against the Joker. Batman makes his way to the abandoned building the Joker's hiding in. There, the Joker pretends to shoot Councilwoman Kenner. Batman knows he's been had, but before he can pounce, the Joker makes his escape. Batman's over the edge now. He's lost all objectivity and, and all of this emotion and moral outrage. Too late, Batman realizes he's in deep shit and tries to jump out a window of the building. But it's too late. The Joker blows up the building with Batman inside. At first, the Joker can't even accept that he's won, but eventually he realizes that Batman's not getting back up. The Joker then kicks Batman into the river and for the first time realizes he has no idea what to do with himself now. Back at the Comedia movie theater, 
The Joker watches more old-school comedies, but there's nothing left for him now. The Joker leaves the Comedia Theater, blows it up, and walks quietly into the night. As he's going through all of this, his manic inner dialogue slowly transitions from typical Joker insanity to calmer, more rational thoughts, making a note to pay a visit to Dr. Epstein to do something about this skin condition of his. Meanwhile, elsewhere, a group of kids run, find a woman called Dr. Eagles, and tell her they found Batman's body washed up on the shore. And he's alive. Part 2 begins with a montage from the Exposition News Network, reporting that a dead body was found floating around in Gotham Bay. The cause of death seems to be a severe beating and strangulation. The body is yet to be identified, though. Meanwhile, Gotham City Police continue their search for the Joker, but so far haven't found anything important. Councilwoman Kenner's pissed off about that, too, because of the Park Ridge bombing and her own kidnapping. Which is where the fuck's Batman and all this, anyway? At the Batcave, Alfred wanders around lost and confused, worried out of his mind about Bruce. We cut to someone's nightmare of being haunted and torment tormented by bats. The man wakes up suddenly and realizes it's just a dream. The man's name is Joseph, and he remembers he's had nightmares like this ever since he was a kid. He decides to go out for a walk and has a meet-cute with his neighbor when he accidentally knocks her grocery bag over. He helps her back into, the, into her apartment and puts her stuff away. She introduces herself as Rebecca Brown. He calls himself Joseph Kerr. From there, the Exposition News Network continues to air sound bites from Councilwoman Kenner speculating about the Joker's future plans. The Joker seems to have completely vanished, so Kenner speculates that he's planning something even worse than the Park Ridge bombing. As for Batman, he's presumed dead by Kenner. This is followed by Alfred sitting alone in the Batcave, and Captain Jim Gordon sitting alone in his office while the bat signal shines unanswered in the sky. Meanwhile, Joseph and Rebecca play cards together. It goes fine until Joseph finds a Joker card in the deck. He wads it up and is completely non-responsive for a while. Rebecca's worried about Joseph, though. He has little episodes like that once in a while. She knows he had some sort of illness, but she never knew the details. And then there are those pills he's always taking for his skin condition. Needless to say, she's concerned about him. And why shouldn't she be? Joseph and Rebecca are living the dream. They've only known each other for three months, but they're in love. And why not? They both like old Charlie Chaplin movies, Jack Benny radio shows, Tommy Dorsey songs, and all that. They're two of a kind, and against all odds, they found each other. We cut to another update from the Exposition News Network. The Talking Head reports that someone named Bruckner, a plastic surgeon who specialized in providing new faces for wanted criminals, has been linked to the Joker. On top of that, more people are starting to believe that Batman has become one of the Joker's victims. This has led to Captain Gordon and Councilwoman Kenner publicly feuding with each other on live national TV. Seeing all of this, Joseph angrily snaps off the TV, bitches and complains about how lousy TV news and modern society both are, and then turns on Rebecca for it. She says he's the one who turned the TV on in the first place, so Joseph loses his shit over it and almost beats Rebecca to a bloody pulp with his bare hands. Joseph catches himself before he does something horrible, though, and runs out of the apartment. Meanwhile, Captain Gordon stands on the roof of police headquarters, shining the bat signal once again. And once again, nobody answers it, so he turns it off and leaves. Later, 
Joseph surprises Rebecca with a room full of flowers and an engagement ring. He calls her the love of his lives and asks her to marry him. Meanwhile, Alfred once again wanders around in the Batcave, lost and aimless. Out of nowhere, Batman appears and announces that he's back. Part 3 starts with Joseph and Rebecca wandering around Park Ridge. They stroll past what's left of the old Comedia Theater. Joseph tells her that he saw some old movies there, but Rebecca doesn't know how the fuck that's even possible because he's lived in Gotham City for less than a year. And he never even moved there until after the Comedia was blown up real good. Not long after they go on their way, Batman swoops by the Comedia Theater. He then falls over because he's still not completely recovered from his injuries. But he's desperate to find the Joker. Batman knows he's nearby. As his inner monologue accuses the Joker, Batman can't quite let go of the fact that the Joker, in effect, killed him. We flash back to Bruce waking up in the care of Dr. Lynn Eagles a week after getting blown up real good by the Joker. She's patching him up in her home rather than in a hospital. Batman was swept out, of, swept out of Gotham City into the town of Accord, which is about 200 miles north of Gotham City, and that's where Lynn Eagles found him. Back in the modern day, Batman pays Captain Gordon a visit. Batman refuses to answer any questions. He just promises to bring the Joker down, no matter what it takes. In the past, Bruce is recovering at Dr. Eagles' home. She comes up behind him, and Bruce reflexively defends himself when she reaches out to massage his shoulders. They talk a little bit, and Dr. Eagles tells Bruce that she's covered up his existence and not contacted the authorities because she knows he's one of the good guys. I guess finding him in a Batman costume wasn't a big enough hint for her. From there, we get a montage of Bruce recovering and undergoing physical therapy, all the while he's amazed by the town of Accord. Accord is the exact way Bruce wants Gotham City to be. Bruce finds peace and contentment in Accord that he never even knew could exist. It's everything he's ever wanted. Back in the modern day, Bruce continues his physical therapy, but he's clearly still not 100% yet. Then he experiences what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. He realizes that the Joker, wherever he is, he's still going to need his fix. He's still going to want to watch the old comedies of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. He searches for a list of people nearby who have heavily rented, rented those videos and cross-references that shit to names that have only appeared in the last six or seven months and finds only one name. Joseph Kerr. We flash back to Accord where Bruce is sitting outside getting some air at four o'clock in the morning. Lynn tells Bruce that she moved to Gotham City for a while and not long after that, somebody attacked and raped her. She eventually healed about as much as you can from that experience, but it took years, and she finally worked up the courage to return to Gotham City. And once again, some lunatic attacked her. God only knows what would have happened, but before Lynn even knew what was going on, she was rescued by Batman. She gives, she gives Bruce back his Batman outfit, and just like that, Bruce is left to the town of Accord. Back in the modern day, just like that, Batman's left the Batcave. Batman breaks into Joseph's apartment, but decides Joseph Kerr is an innocent man that the Joker used to lead Batman on a wild goose chase. Batman leaves the apartment and never gives Joseph Kerr or Rebecca Brown another thought. Meanwhile, the Joker's back. 
part four begins with Batman facing a full-blown hostage situation. The Joker's kidnapped Councilwoman Kenner again and is threatening to kill her if Batman makes even one false move. The Joker then blasts off with his handy jetpack and Batman follows by attaching a zipline to the Joker's foot. This is intercut with a flashback to Joseph and Rebecca's vacation in Pennsylvania, where Joseph repeatedly proposes to Rebecca, who repeatedly accepts. Joseph goes crazy with happiness, and then, just for a second, he just goes crazy. Later, while he and Rebecca are taking a walk, Joseph opens the newspaper and sees a picture of Batman and the announcement that he's back in action. Joseph knows what he has to do. He tells Rebecca to stay where she is while he goes on ahead to make sure the path is safe. Now, the Joker's speeding along Gotham Bay in his customized Joker boat with Councilwoman Kenner held hostage. Batman catches up to them in his own jet ski and gives chase. The story then flashes back and forth between the chase and Joseph Kerr going underwater and coming back to the surface as the Joker. In the present, Batman tells the Joker to give Kenner up. Just let her go. The lightning flashes, and for just a second, the Joker thinks he sees Rebecca's face instead of Kenner's. And then he agrees to let her go. The Joker then rigs his boat to explode, after which he tries to zip off with his jetpack, but Batman climbs aboard and rides the Joker's back. The Joker then loses control, and he and Batman crash on the boat right as it blows up real good. The Joker sinks to the bottom of Gotham Bay, but Batman rescues him as Rebecca narrates for a while. Joseph is missing and presumed dead, but she hopes that no matter what's happened, wherever he is, he's safe. And that some small part of Joseph remembers, always remembers. And she hopes that he comes back to her someday. Elsewhere, in the town of Accord, Dr. Lynn Eagles is having a pretty shitty week. Out of nowhere, she finds a vase filled with flowers and a note with a bat symbol on it. The end. So, what did I think? Well, no bullshit. None whatsoever. This is one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. Not kidding. This is in my top five. If I were trapped on a desert island and could only bring five Batman stories with me, this would be one of them. Now, I read these issues as they came out. And it's kind of funny, actually. I can't really say that I bought them off the rack because I had a subscription to Legends of the Dark Knight when this story was coming out. So these issues always came to my mailbox. You see, kitties? Back in the old days. You could subscribe to comics and they'd be sent to your house every month. Getting to the comic book store on a regular basis was pretty much impossible for me when I was a kid, so I tried everything I could think of to get the comics that I wanted. And one obvious thing is mail order. Yes, this existed long before the internet. I experimented with different services, one of the first of which was a subscription directly from the comic book companies. Now, what I quickly found out was DC subscriptions were a pretty shitty way to get comics if you wanted to get them on time. You see, there was a difference between cover dates and release dates, then and now. And as I recall, this may not be completely right, but as I recall, 
The cover date of a comic book was generally two months ahead of when it came out in comic book stores. It was generally one month ahead of when it came out in retail places like Walden Books or supermarkets or wherever else. But for subscriptions, the ones directly from comic book companies, you know, DC, Marvel, and all the rest, for subscriptions, it could be as much as two months behind when it finally arrived in your mailbox. Well, for stuff that's in continuity, like the Flash or the Superman titles or the mainstream Batman titles, that's no fucking bueno. Because that could put you out of sync when big event shit like Zero Hour or whatever happens. So I had to figure out other mail order options for most of the titles that I followed. And eventually I kind of sort of did. But for stuff like Legends of the Dark Knight, these kinds of things usually took place outside of mainstream continuity. Not always, but the majority of the time. And that made it an attractive option for subscribing directly from DC. I mean, honestly, who cares when these comics arrive? The main point is that they get here. When they get here is almost incidental because continuity probably isn't hinging on Legends of the Dark Knight the majority of the time. Now, part of the allure of Legends of the Dark Knight was the immunity I thought it'd have against the big sweeping crossovers in the mainstream Batman books. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. As good and historic as all that Nightfall and Night Quest and Night's End stuff might have been, I kind of had event fatigue from Doomsday, Funeral for a Friend, and Reign of the Superman from over in the Superman titles. And going through a bunch of fairly similar bullshit with Batman just wasn't in the cards for me. Now, I had options at the time. Some good ones, too. Right about this time, the Batman Adventures comic was kicking a seriously unprecedented amount of ass. The Batman Adventures had long ago hit its stride and was probably, well, arguably, the best comic book, or the best Batman comic book, nobody was reading. But for as good as the Batman Adventures was, there's a level of grit and darkness that the Batman Adventures just couldn't quite reach. And it just felt like I needed some kind of dividend. And I thought Legends of the Dark Knight would be a good addition. I mean, here was another Batman comic set outside the regular continuity. So to me, it was just what the doctor ordered. I could read Legends of the Dark Knight and not have to contend with idiotic bullshit like Jean-Paul Valli trying to convince me that he's Batman. Anyway, so... Just before Going Sane launched, Legends of the Dark Knight did a Zero issue as part of Zero Hour. Not because Legends even tied in with Zero Hour, but, but because that was the mandate from on high. Everybody had to do a Zero issue. Everybody. Even Legends of the Dark Knight, in spite of the fact that a Zero issue for them made absolutely no fucking sense whatsoever. So, Legends number Zero was basically a preview for a bunch of then-upcoming storylines. The comic book itself was barely a story at all, but there was a page from Going Sane included in it. And it was it was the final part of, um, or let me rephrase that, the final page of part three that has a close-up of the Joker just standing around in the middle of the lightning storm. 
I mean, it was fucking scary, and I just knew Going Sane was going to be a mandatory purchase for me. Good thing I'd already subscribed by then. Now, as I said before, Going Sane was written by J.M.D. Mateus, and the basic idea behind Going Sane as a story seems to have been in his head for quite a while before he ever set pen to paper. He first submitted the proposal for this story to DC back in the mid-1980s, but that proposal was denied because DC apparently had other things in mind for the Joker. So the idea just kind of bounced around for a while and somehow ended up in Legends of the Dark Knight. I don't know how, and I, to be honest with you, I don't especially care. Now, the pitch for, the, for Going Sane as a story is pretty, it, it's simple enough. What happens if the Joker wins? What if the Joker kills Batman? Or at least thinks he's killed Batman? This is probably the darkest Batman story I've ever read. Precisely because it gives both Batman and the Joker a shot at happiness. And redemption. The Joker thinks he's fulfilled his mandate. He killed Batman... And at first, he's disappointed that he finally did it. But before too long, he buries himself in a secret identity. Joseph Kerr. He forgets that he's the Joker, settles down into the quiet life, falls in love, goes on vacations, sees movies, and watches TV, shit like that. He lives a pretty domesticated life without Batman. It's not perfect, but they ain't half bad either. As for Batman... He has a chance to slow down and just do simple things. There's no pressing case to solve, no murderers to deal with, no kidnappings, nothing. His most complicated task any given day is planting flowers. Bruce and Lynn don't get as close to each other as Joseph and Rebecca do, but that's because Bruce chooses to keep Lynn a little more at arm's length, but you get the idea that Bruce could fall in love with her if he just stuck around a little longer. Sure, Bruce and Joseph are both haunted by their past lives. Joseph even subconsciously makes a reference to living multiple lives whenever he proposes to Rebecca. But when they're apart from each other, Joseph and Bruce are slowly managing to build new lives. That's the point. They're both finding more love, contentment, and peace than they ever thought was possible. And on some level, neither of them can completely accept that. Shootouts, explosions, kung fu fights, and all that shit's easy for them to cope with. What they struggle with is accepting simple stuff, like asking someone to get married or just watching TV at night. Neither of them can completely buy into happiness. And it gets worse. Batman and the Joker hate each other. Hate each other. Bruce can't completely abandon Gotham City. Not when, for all he knows, the Joker's still on the loose. If there's any chance the Joker might hurt somebody, Bruce knows he has to go back. Batman returning to Gotham City was enough to shatter the very small grasp Joseph had to reality and sanity and normalcy once joseph knew batman was back the joker wouldn't be far behind and think about that for a second 
If Bruce had just stayed in accord with Dr. Eagles, the Joker wouldn't have come back to Gotham. That would have been it. In a sense, yeah, the Joker would have murdered Batman, quote-unquote, but in the bigger scheme of things, Bruce and Joseph would have both won. But Bruce couldn't let it go. He never even paid attention to the news. Not really. It didn't matter that the Joker hadn't been seen in months. All that mattered was that Batman had to do something. And that's ultimately what restarts the cycle of violence between Batman and the Joker. But like I said, if, if Bruce had just stayed in accord, he and Joseph both would have had their happy endings. They would have lived happily ever after, but they didn't. And now, it's impossible for them. I mean, how fucking dark is that? Anyway, so the first few pages of part one do a masterful job of setting up the differences between Batman and the Joker. The Joker bombed Park Ridge and, in the process, created chaos. Batman goes there later to restore order. The Joker is active and Batman's reactive. The Joker creates chaos and mayhem, so Batman swoops in to create structure and order. So, lest any of you think Chris Nolan created the chaos-order paradigm between the Joker and Batman, well, here's proof it existed long before Nolan ever came along. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Something else. Throughout the Joker's other life as Joseph Kerr, he repeatedly has nightmares of being attacked by clowns and giant bats, and, and then he drowns. In part four, the Joker is indeed drowning, and Batman saves him. Something else is that major beats and events in this story tend to be marked or accompanied by explosions. An explosion begins the story in part one. An explosion pushes the Joker back to sanity once he thinks he's killed Batman. And an explosion at the Comedia Theater is how the Joker symbolically closes that chapter of his life and starts his new life as Joseph Kerr. The Joker's boat exploding in part four is what signifies the big climax of the story. Also of interest is that the Joker blows Batman up in uh, part one, and then pushes him into the river. The Joker accidentally blows himself up in part four, and Batman fishes him out of Gotham Bay. It's just it's some interesting reversals there. That's all I'm saying. Now, I guess the real point here is that, look, I could go on and on and on about the writing here, but the point is, it's hard not to get a little choked up toward the end. Batman and the Joker were this close to escaping the horrors of Gotham City forever. But at the end of the day, they couldn't do it because they just hate each other too fucking much. I mean, how sad is that? Anyway. Now, normally, I don't make a big deal out of lettering. And that's because normally, lettering just isn't a big deal. But it's a major part of going sane. When the Joker has an inner monologue, the lettering is just insane. Letters are capitalized when they shouldn't be, or they're lowercase when they shouldn't be. The handwriting is weird and off-kilter, and it's just, it's kind of a mess. But after the Joker thinks he's killed Batman in part one, the Joker's inner monologues and the handwriting, it shifts slow, it, it sh kind of slowly shifts from weird and manic to relaxed and normal. 
And it's perfectly timed with his thoughts, which go from completely psychotic to totally boring and pedestrian. Rebecca's inner monologues are also insightful. She has a very tentative and shy type of handwriting that perfectly captures her character. Batman's inner monologues are lettered very efficiently and succinctly. I mean, he's all business. Anyway, my point is that Willie Schubert really outdid himself here. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the lettering and going sane makes... It makes more of a big creative con- contribution to, to this story than even the coloring. Think about that for a minute. How often is the style of lettering more important to the story than the fucking color? I truly can't think of another example. Going Sane is in a, it's in a class all by itself. Now, through this whole thing, we haven't really talked a whole lot about Joe Staten. Now, I'm a big fan of Joe Staten. Going Sane was my first real introduction to him and his work, but since reading this, I've caught up on Green Lantern Corps, Guy Gardner, Justice Society, all that stuff. Joe Staten is one of those artists who gets better and better every year, if you ask me. And for Going Sane, Staten kind of adapted his cartoony style and brought a a slightly harder edge to the art? Don't get me wrong, it's still recognizably Joe Staten, with everything that implies. But this time, he brings heavier shadows and darkness to some scenes, and it really sets the mood. Plus, Joe Staten's version of the Joker is just a straight-up fucking classic. I don't I don't think Staten draws the, the Joker in his typical purple suit more than once or twice. The rest of the time, he's wearing everything except that. And I think that totally works for the character. I mean, the Joker wouldn't want to wear the same shit every day. He'd, he'd mix it up and wear different types of outfits all the time. And Staten understood that, so he constantly draws the Joker wearing circus costumes and clown costumes, a cop costume, and other stuff. And I loved that. That totally worked for me. And that final shot of the Joker on page 23, right after Rebecca's final monologue, that's fucking chilling. Something else is that's cool is how Joseph Kerr really is the Joker. He's got the same facial structure and even some of the same mannerisms, but at the same time, Staten understood that Joker ha- or the Joseph has to be different from the Joker. So the cheekbones aren't quite as pronounced. He doesn't have the exact same type of chin and all that shit. You can see how Joseph is the Joker, but he's not just a flesh-colored Joker who doesn't smile as often. He has truly transformed. So... This is all my way of saying that Going Sane is one of my favorite Batman stories ever. Like I said, it's in the top five Batman stories that I've ever read. And I could not more highly recommend it to any of you. This is the real thing. This is, like I said, this this actually may be the greatest Joker uh, story that I've ever read in comics. That's how fucking good this is. So, so that's that. So... I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back after these messages.
You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. December 7th, Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Okay, 
I'm back now, and I get to do this for the second goddamn time now because I apparently had problems with my recorder last time I went through feedback, so that's just fucking great. Anyway, so I'm hoping I'm not going to come off as angry as I go through all this feedback as I actually feel, but Jesus, pissed. But uh, anyway, uh, first up, I've, I've, got an, uh, I've, I've got an email here that comes uh, from Socrates. This is dated June the 25th. The title of which, the subject line of which, is Comics and Stores. Socrates writes, Loved the Karate Kid show, Great Magnus. I really enjoyed the email section, too. Actually sold comic books through local mom and pop shops and was near a deal to supply a local pharmacy chain. It wasn't easy, but I was able to operate this distribution for three years. The distribution supported a reading program called Letters for Comics that provided kids in South Florida a free comic for mailing in a one-page letter about their favorite superhero, superpower, or a hero in their lives. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, dude, that is fucking cool. I don't know if this uh, program is still going or not, but, you know, dude, let me know about this. Let me know if this is uh, still going on, because I think it might be kind of neat if we could work this into my show or somebody else's on the Two True Freaks podcast network. I bet a lot of us would probably be on board with uh, promoting this somehow, or if there's something that we can do to help. I don't know what, you know, what the hell I can do to help you out, but, it, but if there's something I can do to help, um, you know, I do hope you'll let me know. Because this is just a, first off, I mean, how can you really... You know, how can you really uh, 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 oppose literacy? You know, I'm, that's, just, that's just unthinkable to me. But the other thing is, especially since it's comics and it's, you know, children reading comics. I mean, dude, what is not to like here, you know? So all around, you know, dude, let us know. Let me know if that uh, Letters for Comics thing is still going on and if there's anything that, you know, we can do to help you out. But um, anyway, get back into his email, though. Socrates writes, Comic back issues were bought in large lots. If they couldn't be used for the letter program, they would receive a bag and board along with a label explaining the reading-writing program. Comics sold for three bucks. Of those three bucks, I made a little over a dollar since I had to pay a percentage to the store and cover the cost of the comic, bag, and board. The challenge for distribution within change is the, uh, chains is that magazine distributors already rent space at those chains. The large magazine rack, or the racks in the checkout aisle, is space rented, and another distributor cannot put their merchandise within those spaces. To access that space, you would need to submit your magazine, buy or rent a barcode, and ship to a central location for distribution. The profit margin drops a lot if I wanted to do this with back issues. It might work for a $4 to $5 sale price, though. I'm just gonna put this email uh, e this uh, email that you that you wrote me, Socrates. I'm just gonna put this on pause and say, dude, I did not know any of this. Now, what I assume is that you're responding to probably a remark I uh, uh, that I've made a, a few times and in a few different places where basically I've whined and complained that comics aren't available in bookstores anymore or gas stations or cigar shops or fucking wherever it is that people used to buy comics when I was a kid they're not there anymore pretty much if you want to buy comics these days you've got to go online you know order them online or you have to go to a comic book store which could explain why the numbers are down as compared to what they used to be I don't know 20 30 years ago right I didn't know, excuse me, I'm getting a drink off my Coke here, I didn't know any of that. And so, um, so first of all, I really appreciate you taking the time to educate me 
and hopefully my listeners about all of this because this is a part of the business that I can fairly well say I didn't know. Now, it's all well and good for me to say that, you know, well, we should bring comics, you know, back uh, to, you know, the gas stations and the convenience stores and the bookstores and all that stuff. But as you say, dude, there's an entire world of bullshit that goes into that that, you know what, maybe it's not going to be quite that, you know, quite so simple. You know, and in fact, it's not even really hard to think that, I don't know, like, okay, like take Walden books, right? Maybe they, if they're even still around anymore, actually, now I'm, I'm really not sure about that, but, you know, maybe their profit margin, in fact, probably their profit margin on comics is pretty slim. And it's maybe meant to be more like garnish, right? Such that, you know, they can do all right if they sell two or three uh, hardback novels, you know, prose novels, and maybe five, six, seven comics in, in one sale. That's probably good money for them. But selling even 20, 30, 40, 50, just whatever number of comics, if all you're making is, in terms of profit, is like 50 cents or maybe even just a dollar, if that, on comics versus the, I don't know, eight, nine, ten dollars you might make. And again, those numbers are completely imaginary, but just roll with me. Versus the eight, nine, ten dollars you might make for selling a, a hardback novel. It's not hard to figure out which of those you're gonna, you know, you're gonna push and be more supportive of. So, you know, I, I totally understand, and I completely understand, you know, that uh, there's there's just a, a world of complication going on in uh, making comics available outside of comic book stores that people may not be sensitive to. I'll be the first to admit that, especially since, you know, like I say, you really opened my eyes to a lot of this. And um, but yeah, so anyway. Get back into his email, though. Socrates writes, With the pharmacy chain, I agreed to place my comics in the candy aisle away from the competition, but couldn't agree on a loss or damage charge since the comics would not be in the front. It's definitely a volume game, but it was easier to set up a, at a, a farmer's market or similar community events and sell comics directly. This was the larger revenue stream. Sorry for the long email. I tried to be quick and shed a little light on the distribution side. But I loved the Matrix episode as well. Best regards, Socrates S. Alvarez III. Do, do not apologize for this because, you know, like I said, you're totally opening my eyes to all of this. I never had any idea that maybe retail distribution or uh, isn't quite as simple as I wanted to originally think. You know, maybe I'd oversimplified the argument. All I was really trying to do was say that it was easy for kids of my generation to get into comics because... Dude, they were everywhere. I mean, they were all over the place. I can't remember going into too many places, you know, too many gas stations, too many bookstores or whatever else, and not at least seeing a comic book spinner rack. So, you know, uh, certainly don't, you know, apologize for, you know, sending me a long email. I was just basically airing my side of it. Everything that you're saying here, dude, it's completely valid, you know, and it, and it does answer my argument as to, you know, why it is that, you know, we don't see comics there anymore. Well, there are practical economic reasons for that that tend to get overlooked when, you know, uh, angry podcasters like me go on these cute little rants in their podcast, but we don't have to face the business realities that make comic book distribution outside of stores kind of impossible. So, dude, I completely understand. And I thank you. Sorry, just getting another drink there. And I thank you for um, uh, sending in, uh, you know, this email. You definitely, uh, 
Like I said, you're definitely sending me to school here. So, anyway, next up, this is an email. It comes from uh, my old friend, Jonathan Kreitz, dated July the 3rd. Subject line is episode 48, feedback, uh, in which Jonathan writes, I've just now caught up on my backlog of episodes and listened to episode 48, The Look Back at the Matrix sequels. I was glad to hear someone else defend those sequels as they up the ante on everything from the original film. More action, more details on the Matrix, more Zion, more, more, more. I admit that when they first hit theaters, I didn't like them half as much as the original. Maybe it was the tone, or the complexities of catching everything on a first viewing, or the weight of anticipation, but they were initially unsatisfying. However, on subsequent viewings, they really are good, and I think your explanation why was very strong. I think you were dead on in that everything hinges on the conversation with the architect. This scene was just too much for most viewers, in part because of the delivery of the scene, and in part because it sort of undoes Neo's heroic re- uh, realization at the end of the first film. Anyhow, no need to regurgitate everything you said on the episode. Good job. I think this is the first time I've emailed the show, but you specifically asked for feedback on this one. Keep up the good work. Jonathan Kreitz also in Houston, Texas, a.k.a. God's Country. And I, and to that I say, yes, sir, you're absolutely right about that. But uh, first up, thank you very much, Jonathan. I appreciate you taking the, uh, taking the time to write in about all of this. And, you know, the thing is, I'm sure you can appreciate it. I didn't necessarily want the Matrix episode to be sort of like an A to Z exposition on why I think those movies are awesome. More what I was trying to do was uh, basically explain... Just a couple of things about the movies that I like, but leave a few things for people to find on their own, right? So you kind of touched upon Neo's sort of realization of things at the end of the first movie and how that and, and how this developments and you know plot progressions and character arcs in the uh, in the sequels. I don't want to say undermined that, but basically revealed that you know what Neo kind of had a simplistic understanding of who he is and what he has to do. And, excuse me, just taking another drink here. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, people went in expecting a certain style, that is to say a certain type of story, and what they got was something else altogether. The other thing, though, um, and that was something, by the way, I just wanted people to kind of glom onto for themselves. The other thing, though, was that it, it just it felt like it would be a little too didactic for me to sit here and say, yeah, dude, you know, basically, you know, there's this and there's this and there's this and this is what it's all about. And, you know, you guys are all morons if you don't think so, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I didn't want to have it like that because so much of the Matrix uh, trilogy comes down really to uh, interpretation. And what I find is that there are interpretive difficulties with a good bit of this stuff. And I think a good example of what I mean is goings on with the Merovingian. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture about who and what the Merovingian is. And honestly, there's there is so little said about him, you know, on the record that you really do kind of have some flexibility insofar as, you know, who this guy is and what he's all about and all that stuff. And I didn't want to, basically, I, I didn't want to get drawn too far off the mark by, you know, goings on with the Merovingian. But at the same time, since I'm using this as an example, 
I think that the Merovingian is the operating system for what we might call version two of the Matrix. The architect says that the first Matrix was basically this flawless utopia. And it failed. The reason for that is because people just psychologically could not buy into the idea of there ever being a utopia. And so their brains just basically shut off. They died in the womb, so to speak. And that utopian matrix was basically a crashing failure, right? And so the architect decided, well, I'm going to make something other than a utopia. I'm going to basically create a new matrix that's got a little bit more in common with mankind's history. And then we're going to experiment with that. This is a version of the matrix that that basically had two major characteristics that distinguish it from the matrix, the version of the matrix that Neo is working under. Namely, matrix version 2.0 did not have the element of choice. It was based on, it was realistic in the sense that it was based on mankind's real history, but it didn't have the element of choice. In other words, people were just basically acting through scripts and they were basically puppets on strings. The other thing is it was sort of a universal monster movie. You know, there were werewolves and aliens and vampires and all this other shit running around. And that is basically what this, what we might call Matrix version 2.0. That's what that one was all about. But here's the thing. It did not have the element of choice. And then, of course, later on, the Oracle comes up with the idea that, you know, if we give people the superficial choice to reject the programming... Some percentage of them, the overwhelming percentage of them, overwhelming majority of them, are going to accept the programming. And she ended up being proven right. Something like 99% of them did accept the programming as long as they were given the choice to reject it. And this is basically the Matrix version 3.0. This was the one that is the most functional but is still flawed in that the element of choice is still basically letting at least some percentage of people say, fuck you, I don't want your programming, and then it's forced on them anyway, and then they have a way... Basically, this is the one, you could say. The one is... The one in 100 is going to be able to say, no thanks, I don't want to have anything to do with you or your programming, I want out, please. That's Matrix version 3.0. Matrix version 2.0, I think that was basically... Um, the Merovingian serving as the operating system for that version of the Matrix, right? And the reason I say that is because that version of the Matrix, according to the architect, didn't have the element of choice. Choice was not a principle of the Matrix version 2.0. You might call it the Nightmare Matrix, right? And basically people were forced to do things that they maybe didn't want to do. They were basically going through scripts. They were puppets on strings. The architect was controlling everything. And that, along with the fact that it was sort of a monster movie where you had aliens and werewolves and all that other shit running around, I think basically that caused people's brains just to fucking short circuit. People were like, you know what? On some instinctive level, they knew this could not possibly be reality. This is not what life is supposed to be like. And so um, that's why Matrix version 2.0 or the Nightmare Matrix was a failure. You know, it was closer to the mark in that it was realistic. 
but it still didn't have choice. And it still had all this weird bullshit monsters and stuff running around. That's what people were ultimately uh, struggling against. And so Matrix version 3.0, which is kind of beside the point, but Matrix version 3.0 retains the realism of uh, mankind's history, but eliminates uh, all of the monsters and other bullshit, and it lets people have a choice. Even if it's a completely superficial choice, choice is still an element of the Matrix. And to go through all of that in the Matrix episode, I felt like that's a lot of stuff to have to listen to and process and try to figure out and all that stuff and try to follow along. And, you know, for that reason, I just didn't. And also, I got to tell you, I'd need to include sound clips and stuff like that for it. And it just kind of felt like it would be too big a pain in my ass to go through all of that stuff and explain all of this stuff in exacting detail. And so that's why I didn't want to go through it. And plus, like I say, you know, so much of the Matrix is interpretive to begin with. I didn't want to sit here and just kind of didactically lay out what... I think of everything. I wanted people to be able to just go through this, analyze it on their own terms, and maybe, you know, come to their own conclusions. And so that's what I did, you know, sink or swim. That's what I did. And, you know, that's what I thought was going to be the most entertaining to listen to. But at the same time, I didn't want to give the impression that that I said everything that I necessarily have to say about the sequels. I just think I've said probably 60, 70% of it. So anyway... Hopefully that all makes sense, but no matter what, thank you for taking the time to uh, write in. I really appreciate that. Okay, so uh, next email. This is dated July the 9th. This comes from Curtis King, my old friend. And uh, the subject line is 50th episode feedback. Curtis writes, Trentus, just finished listening to your epic 50th episode and wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed both the variety of issues covered coupled with the differing viewpoints from your guests. The three-and-a-half-hour running time could not have been better timed as I had a four-hour drive to Fort Worth early in the morning on Tuesday. It kept me awake and highly entertained for that drive. I also enjoyed, uh, I, I have also enjoyed, I should say, I, I also have enjoyed sampling the podcast from some of your guests. The list now includes the Pop Culture Affidavit podcast as well. I'm just going to put this email on pause and say, dude, that is freaking awesome. Uh, dude, look, anything that I can do to send more listeners Tom Panarisa's way. Anything I can do for that is fine by me, man. So thank you very much for uh, listening to the show. I'm telling you, man, you will not be disappointed. That show is punk rock on a cracker. And so, um, you know, I'm really glad that, you know, you're getting into that show as well. Uh, Tom, he runs a hell of a show, a hell of a couple of shows, actually. He runs a hell of a show, and uh, I'm I'm really hoping that you're going to enjoy it. So anyway... Get back into Curtis's email, though. He writes, On a more personal note, I admit to being mildly touched by the last part of your podcast where you opened up a bit about your personal life and your recent career struggles. I can't express how happy I was to hear that the concerns about the working environment at that I heard Stasis Magnus pass on to you appear to be unfounded and that you are happy there. Congrats on the new career opportunity and on reaching the 50th episode milestone. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, dude, that's freaking great. Thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate that. And honestly, it really, first of all, it just means a lot that, you know, people really have responded the way they did um, to the 50th episode in general. And really that part in particular, I mean, a lot of people have come out of the woodwork, I guess, and said, you know what, that last part turned out all right. But dude, I got to tell you, I thought that, you know, all around that three and a half hour runtime, 
I thought that was going to be uh, a deal breaker for at least a few people because, you know, what I find is that a lot of podcast episodes, whether it's my show or anyone else's, they tend to want to be about an hour-ish. And the minute you get too far away from that, bad things start happening. And so, you know, I thought that was absolutely on the table here because what we're talking about is three and a half freaking hours and I just felt like, you know what, this may be a bridge too far for some people. And especially at the very end, that kind of, because that little monologue bit I had at the ending, you got to understand, like, then is, you know, then is like right now, I was talking completely extemporaneously, didn't have any kind of a, uh, of an outline or anything like that to work off of. And so it's just basically me off the cuff and just kind of, you know, shooting the bull uh, about some stuff that had, you know, that was going on. And I thought, you know what, dude, between the long runtime of this and the, um, and also just the kind of personal nature of the very last part, I thought, you know what, this may actually be my undoing. And come to find out that's actually not the way a lot of people have looked at it at all. So anyway, all around, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, I realize that this next bit may be a little bit too much inside baseball for you, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there anyway. I usually encode my podcast episodes at 128 kbps, right? 128 kilobytes per second, 128k, right? And except for my promos, those are at 320k, the highest possible MP3 quality you can have. Otherwise, I tend to go for 128k. And the reason for that is I find that, you know, that's a bit rate that most people are familiar with, and it's psychologically, I think most people just expect that type of sound quality from any MP3 that they listen to. And so that's usually what I use. But the issue I ran into with episode 50 is that runtime where it's three and a half hours long. And honestly, dude, what you could say is that it's not exactly perfect, but with 128K uh, MP3 encoding, it basically works out to one minute of audio is one megabyte of file size. Three and a half hours. Do the math. And so, well, unfortunately for me, the uh, there is a file size limitation uh, that Two True Freaks uh, imposes on me. And I'm not saying that to criticize them. I'm just saying it's reality. All right, This is reality for me. And so I cannot have a file size bigger than 200 megs. So encoded at 128K, episode 50 was something like 198 megs. And so I'm getting pretty close to the limit of what's possible to do, uh, you know, within the limitations that my, uh, that my hosts have, uh, you know, have, have, have given me. All right. And so for that one episode, just to tell you how fucking big this thing is, I had to encode that one at 112 kbps. Now that may not sound like it's a huge difference, but just, Try to pay attention to these numbers, right? When I encoded that episode at, uh, you know, episode 50, when I encoded that episode at 128K, the, uh, the uh, final episode's size was 198 megs. 198, 198 megs. At 112K, which may not seem like a big difference, but it is, the file size was 169.7 megs. So instead of being two megs away from the file size limit, I'm now closer to like 30 megs away from it. So 
that's how freaking long that episode was. So, and like I said, I mean, I really felt like this could be the moment when I lose my audience. And so, you know, thankfully that in, that seems like it's not what happened, but you know, there you have it. And by the way, also, thank you for, uh, you know, letting me know, you know, when and how you listen to this, because I've always been kind of curious about that. You know, it's not like I want to stalk my listeners or anything like that and find out about it. But I've always been kind of curious, you know, I mean, do people listen to this on the crapper? Do they listen to it when they're, I don't know, just driving around? Do they listen to it in their sleep or something? I mean, how do they do it? You know, I've always been sort of curious about that. Do they listen to it at work? You know, and so this is, uh, this is kind of cool. So thank you very much. I mean, like me personally, I listen to uh, really all, all podcasts. I listen to those uh, when I'm driving to and from work. You know, it's just it's a nice, convenient time to do it. And uh, Curtis, I'm pretty sure you know what 290 looks like. And so it's just, um, it's just a, in fact, come to that, I'm, I'm guessing Jonathan Kreitz probably does too, maybe. But, uh, you know, just all around, it, uh, it just, you know, that's what I like. That's when I like listening to podcasts, you know, because I can, I can listen and pay attention, but at the same time, I'm still aware and I'm driving safely, you know, so all around. I think that's just, you know, the best way. F- but you know what? Fuck it. You know, you guys, you know, you listen to this, email me. Let me know. How do you listen to my show? You know, kind of curious to know about that now. Anyway, so <clears throat> uh, I'm going to get back in his email now. Curtis wrote, P.S. While nobody should hold it against you if the podcast ended tomorrow, I'd be just as happy with a monthly podcast format, or even a quarterly one. A little Magnus still goes a long way in my book, which I think is a compliment. I'd be thankful for anything. Here's hoping that I will get uh, a chance to meet you in person at some point in the future, but until then, keep on punching. Signed, Curtis King. And dude, thank you so much for uh for this email really appreciate you taking the time to write in and uh, i really hope you're enjoying the series i'm going through right now where i'm alternating between superman or superman i keep saying this but where i'm alternating between spider-man and batman comics leading up to uh, the batman spider-man team-up book disordered minds i'm uh you know, I'm hoping you and you're that you're digging this because it feels like you know I keep telling you that i that I'm going to uh, cover more Marvel books, but then that gets pushed back and pushed back and pushed back, and then fucking and never happens. So anyhow, that's you know that's basically that stuff. So I think that's that. So anyway, come back next week. I have no idea what I'll be talking about, but I'm sure it's gonna be awesome. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled t-r-e-n-t-u-s-s-m-a-g-n-u-s-s you can email me and my parole officer at trentus magnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R. E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. 
and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.